Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning. My name is Elijah Daly, and I get to be one of the ministers here on staff. And we have been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. Specifically, we've been looking at how and what it means to be shaped by Jesus in light of what he has accomplished on the cross. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how he's commissioned us that our work can have purpose, that God has invited us to be a part of building his kingdom here and now, and specifically that sometimes that's even at the expense of ourselves, that we should relinquish our rights, and in doing so, we can put all of the focus on God and God alone. And today, what we're gonna do is take a little bit of a turn. We're gonna talk about the cross and the Christian gathering. But I'll be honest with you, the text that we are going to be looking at is one of the most difficult texts to completely understand in all of scripture. Studiers of the Bible have been scratching their head over this text for a while. So I wanna invite you simply to do this, to listen in on our text this morning as we begin to study it, to hear what the word of God says and how we can begin to apply it to our lives. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 11. Here it is. Let's allow scripture to take our thoughts captive as we reflect and respond to the word of God. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be conscious about this, we have no other practice nor did the churches of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 22. Preach, they said. It'll be fun, they said. (laughs) Well, listen, a funny story happened a couple weeks ago. So uh, one of our friends brought us a meal 
And my wife went to the door and she entered it and she started to talk and I was like, I better go help, you know, start to bring a little bit of this in. And so I go to the door and I grab the dinner and I bring it and I put it in the fridge and I come back and I join the conversation and then she hands me this pie and guys, this pie, Oreo crust peanut butter pie, amazing pie. And I was like, I cannot wait to eat this. I go and I put it in the fridge and I head back to the door, rejoin the conversation and the friend is like, oh, I forgot. Um, I need to go get the breadcrumbs. I forgot. And so she goes to her car. She brings them back. She's like, these are supposed to go on top. And I was like, great. So I take them, go and put them in, um, in our kitchen on the counter, rejoin the conversation again. We finish up. She leaves. We eat dinner and the time comes. Time to break open that, that Oreo crust peanut butter pie. So I get it and I cut it all up into little slices and I put, put a piece on my plate and I get those breadcrumbs, I start putting them on top. And my wife is like, what are you doing? And I was like, she said to put the crumbs on top. And she said, yeah, those are for the dinner. They're breadcrumbs. They don't go on the pie. And when I look at a passage like this, uh, I feel like it's a similar circumstance. Like I kind of heard the conversation. I, I heard some of the details. I wasn't there for all of it, but I kind of know what's going on. And then we try to apply it or we try to understand it completely. And it's a little bit like putting breadcrumbs on your pie, which by the way, I did, I still ate it and it was amazing. Uh, but nonetheless, here's what I think Paul is saying throughout this entire text. Here is what I think his major point is is that our gatherings are meaningful. Our gatherings are meaningful. And if there's something that I have discovered within these last several months of this weird season of life, it is this, that our gatherings are meaningful. Being separated, knowing that there are people still watching online because of the fear or the risks that are involved. Our gatherings are meaningful. What we do matters. And I think that Paul is going to give us two reasons why this is the case. And here's the first one, is that our gatherings say something about God. Listen here to what, what Paul begins to say in verse two. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You see, Paul starts by encouraging the Corinthians. They have inherited these traditions and they are still using them. We'll come to find out these are head coverings. But he's saying, I'm so glad that you're still using these. It's so helpful, but I don't want you to just use them because it's something that we've always done. I don't want you to continue on the tradition without understanding that it actually has meaning behind it, that it actually is signifying something greater. And this is what it is, that within the family of God, God is the leader. Now, notice what he says. He says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And that can start to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because the implications then are that God is the leader of Christ, that Christ is the leader of man, that man is the leader of wife, right? And more questions arise pretty quickly, like, hold on, I thought Jesus was God. But now you're saying that God is the leader of Jesus? Or like, is it, is it a value distinction? Is it saying God is greater than Jesus? Or is it saying that man is greater than woman? I think that the, most of the answers to these questions are no, but I wanna begin to unpack what I believe Paul is saying here. And the first thing is this, is that usually when, when Paul begins to use this word God, he's using it as a title for the Father. That's who the Father is. But Paul has already made clear that he believes that Jesus, the, that is the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit, that is, they are all one, that they are God together. Three persons, right? 
He has made this clear throughout the New Testament and actually has made this clear three chapters ago. In, in chapter eight, listen to what he says. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see, so his point here is not that he's trying to say something about value. He's not trying to say that, that one is superior than the other. He's just trying to, to establish that each of us have different roles. And the point is that Jesus has taken a follower role. That leadership is not a promotion of value. It is simply the role uh, that, that the Father has taken. And we see this even when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's praying, Father, your will be done. Even at the cost of my own life, your will be done. And that's the point. You see, the Father is the leader that Christ willingly follows. Christ is the leader that men willingly follow. Men are the leaders their wives willingly follow. And if Christ can be a follower, we all truly can. Because the point of what Paul is trying to establish is that every single one of us have different roles, different gifts that we use within the body of Christ to be a blessing. And they do not determine our value. They simply determine our use, our contribution to the kingdom of God as we try to be a blessing to the whole world and those around us. And Paul is saying that, that Christ is the head, but the head still needs a body. It still needs fingers and hands and toes. And these, these head coverings were a very small way to demonstrate theologically, they were celebrating physically what was true spiritually. And here's what he says in, in verse four. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. You see, the head coverings were celebrating physically what was true spiritually. And they were specifically supposed to be used to distinguish male from female. And this is a, is a really important distinction because in doing so, it actually sets out and it displays the beauty that each gender possesses in and of themselves. And this is Paul's point that if a woman won't wear a head covering, she might as well cut off, shave off all of her hair so that she looks like a man. Because in this time, by doing so, she would have been actually asserting herself to be a man as if she was a man herself instead of embodying the best and most beautiful parts of what made her female. Now listen, both parties are praying, both parties are prophesying, but they must be distinguished in how they appear as they do so, because in doing so, they are pointing to a greater theological truth outside of themselves, which is that God is the leader. Why? Because our gatherings say something about God. Listen to what he says in verse seven. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now again, when we hear the word glory, our minds go to something that's exalted, right? And so we get a little uncomfortable, a little nervous when Paul says that man is God's glory, whereas women are men's glory. But again, when we come to a conversation like this, we are reminded we do not have all the details. We are overhearing a conversation and specifically a personal letter to a people that Paul has already have, has a deep connection, a deep relationship with. And so we don't have all the details, but here's what we do have. We have the whole counsel of scripture. 
And so when we approach a difficult text like this, it's helpful to go to other texts that give greater clarity. And I think that there's two of those. First Thessalonians 2.20 and Ephesians 5.25-28. Now Thessalonians, Paul's writing to them and he's celebrating, he's encouraging them because he's seen their faith and their hope and their love. And they've been able to demonstrate this so well and despite the temptation to abandon the faith, despite all of the social, the pressures that they're facing, the cultural pressures that they're facing, they have showed their faith and their hope and their love. And Paul is so excited about this, who they are becoming in light of these things that he ends, ends the celebration with verse 20 when he says, for you are our glory and joy. You see, they were Paul's glory, not because they were exalting Paul, but because they were the fruit and the work of his labor. His responsibility was to lead them into a deeper understanding of Christ and to start to look more and more like Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You see, man is only the glory of God when he's doing the things God called him to do. And you know what that text says? That text says that, that man should allow himself to be a, to the responsibility of going into his home, into his family, and specifically for his wife to do everything, even at the expense of himself, even at the cost of his own life, that he might present his bride in beauty and, and splendor and holiness and blamelessness before his God, that she would be his gift. And this is Paul's point, that, that women only become men's glory when men truly become God's. And the point is that men would be able to live out their responsibilities in a way that honors God. And head coverings were a very small way to communicate these deep, amazing theological truths. This is why Paul says, like the angels, because the angels, they too were, were a, a glory that, that specifically represented the God that they wanted, to, they wanted to show themselves as their labor and their work reflecting this God. And this isn't a new idea. Like we see this all the time. So I have a four-year-old son, Keller, you know, and we'll be watching TV, maybe, you know, football or whatever the case may be, and a commercial will come on about smoking, and it's always got just frightening things in it, right? It's just the scariest things. And my son's like, what is that? And I'm like, well, you know, they're trying to explain that smoking is bad and you shouldn't do that. And he's like, oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So next day, of course, you know, we're on a walk going down the street, and of course, somebody comes out of their house smoking a cigarette 10 feet away from us. And he's like, dad, look, that guy's smoking. He's going to get sick. And it's like our dread, right? It's just like mortifying. And you're like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The TV taught him this, okay? But then there are those really precious moments, those really meaningful times when he's so kind and somebody notices and they say, man, Keller, you're so polite. And you see, that in some small way becomes our glory because who he is becoming is a direct reflection on us. We want him, we're trying to help him become the most beautiful child, the most beautiful man that he will become. And that is a small way in which that reflection exists. And that's still true for us. Who we become matters. What we do matters. And when we gather in this place, 
that becoming and those, those things that we do, they say something about God. So what does that mean for us today, right? Some of you guys, the guys in this room who wore a hat today, they were like, oh, I need to take this off. And some of the women are like, but can I borrow it? <laughs> like, do we need to have long hair? Do we need to wear hats, right? That's the question. So let's look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Now listen to what he's saying there, right? He's saying that, look, theologically speaking, it's true. There's something meaningful about the fact that woman was created from man. But let's not forget that like now, men come from women, right? His point is going forward. All things are from God. He continues on, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. You see, Paul's point is men and women are interdependent. They work together. They work with one another. And the most important part of what Paul is trying to say is not that a woman wear a physical hat of sorts or have this like long hair that goes to her, le- to her feet, right? The whole point of what Paul is saying is that she truly embodies the best parts of what make her female, that men truly embody the best parts of what make them men. Now, in the first century, long hair, head coverings, those were female identifiers, Those were female identifiers, not so much in the 21st century. And so the more we can begin to say that and truly embody the best parts of what truly establishes our gender and the way in which God made us and the beauty that each of those genders possess, the more we can say something about God. Because that is what our gatherings are meant for. But they do something else. Paul's second point as to why our gatherings are meaningful is that they say something about us. You see, Paul will switch gears in verse 17. And he'll start talking to the Corinthians. He said, look, you did a good job with the head coverings and observing those, but you are not doing well with the Lord's table. And to be honest with you, I'm pretty frustrated. I'm frustrated with how you have treated this meal. And he says that he observes a couple things. First off, there's divisions in the church that are causing all these relational strains. Secondly, there's these rich people, and this was much more of a meal back in the day, but there's these rich people who are just eating all this food and they're cutting the poor out. In addition to this, get this, there's people who are using the wine that was supposed to be representative of Christ's blood and they're getting drunk off of it. And this is Paul's point in all of this, is that this event, this meal, the meaning of it, had been completely ripped of all it was supposed to entail. There's no reverence, there's no significance, there's no meaning. And the Lord's table, I mean, it goes by many names depending upon what denomination you might be from. The Eucharist, the Lord's table, communion. We call it Jesus' table. And all of these are rooted in scripture. And Paul's purpose is to see that everybody has a seat by the grace of God. Everybody's been invited to sit at this table and to enjoy the benefits of God. And he's talking about the purpose of what all it entails. Listen to what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, just as head coverings were rich in theological meaning, so is the Lord's table. 
It became a sign of the new covenant, the new promise that God had made to his people. And this wasn't new to the people of God. Right? There were so many covenants and promises that God had made that were, that were shown. In fact, we know of the one made with Abraham, right? You guys know the story. God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. You're going to increase and cover the earth, and you're going to become a blessing to the whole earth, right? But what happens in the story of Moses? The story of Moses in the book of Exodus, we see that the Israelites are taken captive by Pharaoh because of their overpopulation. They were increasing so much that Pharaoh saw them as a threat. And so not only did he enslave their families, he started to kill their young boys in hopes that it would continue to preserve his power. And God, God saw these things. And he said, Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him to let my people go. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, you must let the people of God go or the wrath of God will come upon you and this empire in the form of plagues. But we know, right, Pharaoh didn't, doesn't do it. Each time Moses goes and Pharaoh doesn't do it. Finally, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, you have to let the people of God go or a destroyer will come. The wrath of God will come and it will destroy, it will kill all the firstborn sons. Pharaoh refuses still. So Moses goes to the people of Israel and he says, listen, this is what you have to do. You have to kill a lamb Get the blood and put it on the, on the threshold of your doorway. Put it on that doorway so that when the destroyer comes, it passes over you. And it happens just as Moses said, just as God commanded. And Pharaoh finally lets the people of God go. And it became a celebration for them because for the first time, these families were experiencing freedom, liberation. And they were going to the place God called them to go and to be. Now, What's interesting is how they celebrate that now. You see, that event became known as Passover, and they celebrate that in many ways, but specifically with a meal. And this Passover meal was the exact meal that Jesus and his disciples were having when he was betrayed that night. This is what Paul is describing for us, that meal in which Jesus takes the bread and the blood, and he says, you know what these things are for going forward as a promise I'm making towards you about what I will accomplish. You see, Jesus was saying that we are enslaved, not by a physical tyrant, but by a spiritual one. And we keep going back to our sin over and over again, and we're headed for a grave. And Jesus says, the wrath of God is coming, but instead of it falling upon us, you see, Jesus becomes the Passover lamb whose blood is shed, and our lives become the doorway over which his blood is covers. And that wrath passes over, and it becomes a meaningful reminder of all that God has done. So you can see why Paul is nervous about how they are treating this meal. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He says, this meal became a buffet to you. But even worse, you are cutting the poor out. And the meal that was supposed to be an encouragement and a reminder of everything that Christ had done for you on the cross and through his resurrection has now been ripped of all meaning, just a shell of what it was. Our gatherings say something about us. And unfortunately, their gatherings were saying that their individual pleasure was more important than their corporate fellowship. You see, our gatherings are meaningful. And so for us, 
what I want to do today is take an inventory of what our gatherings say. That this, this book, this chapter could begin to speak life even into our gathering here today. So what do our gatherings say? Well, you might have noticed when you walked into this place that we have lights and we have videos and we have screens and speakers and haze. And some of the things that people say when they walk into a place like this is it seems like these people are a lot more interested in a show. And can I just be honest with you? Very upfront, that would never, ever, ever be our intention. You see, if our gatherings ever say that our, that our individual experience and pleasure is more important than God's glory, then our gatherings are completely meaningless. No, instead, we believe that environments matter. They say something. And you guys, you understand when you're on top of a mountain, when you're on the ocean, when you are enjoying a, a hot dog on the 4th of July, the taste, the smell, the scene of it all, it creates an impression. When you want to watch a movie, when you simply need quietness, when you are allowing yourself to throw a party, the biggest party you've ever seen, environments matter. When you're taking your spouse out and you have a candlelit dinner, Rose petals all around. Environments matter. And we believe that to be true, that God has given us this freedom and the creativity and the innovation to be able to create environments that will truly speak to his glory. In fact, we actually see this in the book of Exodus. Moses, and when they finally get to the promised land, Moses starts giving directives. Well, they're on their way to the promised land. Moses starts giving directives about what it is they should build. And he says, these two men have been commissioned by God. They've been gifted by God to do and build these amazing things, that they would create these curtains out of these fine linens and embroider these amazing images, that they would sculpt, that they would build a temple and overlay it in gold. So that when every single person would begin to approach the temple, the tabernacle, they would begin to see that the presence of God is here. That when they begin to approach the presence of God, they would be in awe and wonder at all that he is. Environments matter. And our hope is that we can shape one that simply takes out distractions and captures the dynamic of all of, that our God is over and over again that this would be a place where we could sing. You see, that's another thing we get to do in this place, we sing. And we have these songs that are shared anthems and prayers that say who our God is and what he has done. But the truth is, we have to join them. You see, if we have come only to spectate instead of join, that's when it becomes a show. Worship doesn't cease being worship because it includes technology. Worship ceases being worship when it lacks worshipers. And the truth is that our worship should be far more about our sacrifice than our comfort. And so can I be Paul for a moment and just challenge us? We must find new ways to physically demonstrate these spiritual realities that we believe our God is king, that we could find postures that truly begin to speak to all that God is. When we raise our hands and surrender, when we close our eyes to just drown out distractions, when we get on our knees in humility, it's saying something about God. Our gatherings begin to say something meaningful that shape everything. And perhaps, you're, perhaps you say, well, I just don't think I need to do that. I don't need to do that to worship. I'm fine worshiping the way I do. I still worship. And perhaps you don't. But God deserves us too. If God were to walk in the room would he even know you were worshiping? Because you see, when we, get to, when we get to heaven, Revelation says that when we see our King Jesus face to face, every knee will bow, that our arms will be raised, that we will be celebrating, that we will be singing so loud, it will become one voice, just a wave of sound that glorifies the King. Why would that be different than today? 
our gatherings say something about God and they say something about us. And we hope that our gatherings are a specific reflection of scripture that we believe is the very word of God. This is what we preach. This is why we'll spend time in a weird chapter like this because we believe regardless of, of the fact that it might be weird to us in the 21st century, we actually do believe that these are the very words of God. And we're okay preaching topics from time to time. You know, we, we have no problem with that. We do that sometimes. But to truly allow scripture to speak You see, we believe that scripture is the very word of God. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It corrects, it rebukes, it encourages, and it trains us in righteousness. And we will never stop going back to that fountain. We will never stop going to that place where we can allow God to speak louder than we ever could. Because in doing so, we get to see life change. And we get to see that even through baptisms, Another thing we do in this place that I love, that I think we do so well, can I just be Paul again and commend us? I feel like we do this well. You see, baptism is our covenant event. It's our marriage ceremony. It is a public confession and promise to God that he is all that matters, that you're going to live for him now and forever. And we see people from all walks of life enter into that tub. And you know what they do? They make this public confession and they symbolically die in Christ and raise with him. They are dipped into the water like a grave and lifted out like a resurrection. And Luke 15 says that every time one sinner, one person repents, that the entire heavens roar with praise and celebration. And what I love that we do so well, church, is I feel like we love to join the celebration. Amen? Because our God has brought life from death. And when this happens, we get to celebrate Jesus' table. If you will, just take out those emblems for me. You see, the truth is, I I may not ever be able to measure how well we do this as a church because we don't have big meals like they did, so nobody's, you know, eating so much that they're leaving others out. And we don't use wine, so nobody's getting drunk. But the purpose of this meal is to remember what Christ has done, who he was, what he accomplished. Jesus He died, he was killed, a sinless man for a sinful people, offering forgiveness to his enemies that they might become his friends. What a love, what a grace, what a truth. And this moment says that our God is Savior and Lord and that he is our Savior and Lord. And the truth is some people They're nervous to sit down at this table because they think they have to be perfect. But you wanna know something, church? We don't sit down at a table to eat because our bellies are full, but because they are hungry. And we are hungry for life, hungry for rescue, hungry for Jesus. Because we truly do believe he's the only thing that will ever satisfy our lives. That what his death and resurrection has accomplished is forever secure. And he's invited us to this table to have a seat. Our name is written on it. To enjoy the benefits of knowing Jesus, but we have to be able to examine our lives, our motives. Do we truly believe this? Have we forgiven our enemies or even those in our friends or family that have wronged us when we know we have received a forgiveness we could never deserve? You see, Paul is pushing on them here. Come back to the true meaning of what it means to follow Jesus and proclaim it until he comes again. 
Now, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't made a public confession of faith, and our prayer today is that you would. You see, our, t- our, our prayer today is that you would overhear, you would see our gatherings, and you would see how amazing we think God is and how he comes through every time. But I wanna talk to the church for a moment. For those of you who do call yourself believers, for those of you who do and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you see, this meal is everything for us. It's everything. It's a confession, a proclamation of everything our God has done, that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is God. You see, if our gatherings say something, then this, this moment in our gathering says that failures can be forgiven, that the lost can be found, that the broken can be healed, the dead will rise again, that the power through the power of the Almighty, the suffering can be redeemed, that sin will lose its sting, and that death will be swallowed up forever. If our gatherings say anything, they begin to say that we worship a God who is greater and far above all things. And these emblems become small physical celebrations of spiritual realities. We pray that they always and forever say that when unbelievers come in and when believers come in and for the first time maybe today, that you would simply hear our gatherings say that God is reviver and we are alive. And so let's approach the table today. Let's simply take our seat and enjoy the benefits of the love and the grace and the truth that we can never earn on our own and yet it has been freely given. Let me pray. Father God, you are holy and true and mighty. And we pray that you would just continue to help us become more of the people you have called us to be, that we would be able to truly worship, that our gatherings would be loud with praise that they would truly demonstrate all that you are, that we would become more and more molded and shaped into your image as we embody the best parts of what bring glory to you. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cc.